Black Cats Run Podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll, and this is Black Cats Run. Deus Ex Machina, Episode 2. In this episode, we ask the question, Why do we arrive at the conclusions about how we should train effectively? And then, is there an optical illusion of distribution of ability that causes us to continue to train in the ways that we do? If you are enjoying this episode and other episodes, please take a moment to share with other people who you think would enjoy this or other conversations we have here on the podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Black Cats Run and send us a message. Let us know what you're thinking or if you're interested in a consultation about your own training, you can also contact us in that space as well. Let's get into today's episode. Before we even try to talk about how and why we come up with the kinds of training strategies we do. We need to think about how and why do we decide what to listen to in the first place. Is that process really as reasoned or carefully considered as we might like it to be? ideas about how we should be training and preparing and how we should be engaging with a process to improve our level of performance in athletics or really in the pursuit of anything that requires us to go or where we are interested in going from a state A, an initial state, to state B, a developed, a different, a presumably like more high yielding state um, is something that is a really interesting and complex social behavior. If we were to think about a graph with the level of performance on the x-axis, horizontal, and then the size of an audience on the uh, y-axis, the vertical axis, what we would see is that the level of performance as there's a certain point in that scale of performance where it exhibits like an exponential explosion in the size of the audience. And people leverage this stuff all the time. I mean, it's a basic relationship of um, if we see something that we perceive as exceptional, we're presuming there must be exceptional value. And you could think of it also or articulate it also as the concept of like um, an, an expression of scarcity, right? Where the more rare something is, the more value it has. And with ideas, um, because ideas are constructed interpretations and attempts to understand, you know, the fabric of stuff that might be really going on, it's really complicated um, and difficult to try to just use the availability of a given voice 
And then there's this equivalence or this equivocation of the value of voices, which is to say that, well, if you think about it like, you know, marathoning um, as an example of like, you know, really pop something that is and has been for a while now a super popular endurance uh, discipline that a lot of people participate in, um, you know, the number of marathoners who can run a marathon in four hours, okay, is quite um, high. The number of marathoners who can, say, qualify for um, the Olympic trials marathon in the U.S. Um, is quite low. And the assumption is that the ideas that are articulated by the Olympic trials marathoner um, are significantly more valuable than whatever the four-hour marathoner might have to say. And there's some evidence that seems to substantiate that, right? That um, on the one hand, if you're running four hours for a marathon, it's possible that you're very new and that um, your four-hour marathon is a consequence of a lack of knowledge or a lack of experience. And that with a different level of knowledge and experience, you would exhibit a different level of performance. And then therefore, you would have accumulated more knowledge. Now, I don't necessarily think this is the best the best way we should be basing our assumption of whether or not something's giving us value. But the problem is that we don't know or understand what's going on. And within sports and individual endurance sports or team endurance sports, there's this value for accepting things um, uh, as like basically an act of faith, which is that I don't understand what training is. I don't understand what this VO2 max thing means, but I'm going to um, confidently engage with that. And I'm going to express to others, right, that, that, that that's important and that's what we should be doing. And so we also have this phenomena as a consequence of that step of behavior that ideas are maybe being voiced by a small number of people. But then there's this way in which we are kind of like, well, we want these to come from this like exceptional place, but then we want to see that um, there's a consensus around that. So that basically means it's like if you all go to an auditorium to listen to a lecture or presentation or watch some sort of a performance, a show or something, it doesn't matter what it is, but the audience goes and they are presented with something, right? And that's supposed to be the value of that. It is, it is performed on the audience, if you will. And everybody in that audience is going to walk away from that experience. And if the performance was effective, it would have impacted all or the overwhelming majority of people in that audience in a very similar way. And it would create a consensus of experience. And so then all of those people are going to go out and they're going to independently, if they talk about that performance, they're going to talk about that in the same way. And so now you have this illusion of consensus. And the reason why I would consider it to be an illusion of consensus is because I think real and meaningful consensus would have to come from a large cohort of individuals going through a systematic process of reasoning, um, trying to, you know, in a sense, independently verify something that has been presented to them. And that then, you know, when a larger and larger groups of people independently reach the same conclusion, then I think that that's powerful. But when an audience goes and has a common experience 
And then that understanding gets circulated. And you see this in political culture, um, regardless of what your concept of, you know, political ideologies are. The reality is that with political ideologies writ large, you know, you have things that are articulated from sort of a uh, scarce resource of a person of uh, perceived status and value. And then other people, right, are audience to that. And then they articulate that. Um, And, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, when you try to engage with those things, they don't actually make sense or the people can't explain them because they haven't independently thought through them, right? And that's why uh, ideologies can be so problematic and and challenging is it will lead people to act in ways that don't make sense, but that their perception is that it makes sense. And then they have that bias of like, well, there's consensus because, well, there isn't consensus. It's just like everybody else is in the audience and they all had that same experience and, you know, it was performatively effective. And that's where, when you have the clip of um, Alexi Papas talking about this, like, you know, my coach was an Olympian, so of course I, you know, absorbed everything that they had to say. And, you know, they said a third of the time you feel good and a third of the time you, you know, feel neutral and a third of the time you feel bad. And that was, you know, so powerful for me. And just that, just as a YouTube short, you know, that has, you know, approaching 5 million views. And it's, you know, that's just one medium in which that piece of information has been circulated, right? So that's an audience of millions and millions of people, right? And if you would combine the other sources in which that's presented, you know, it'd, it'd probably be already be over 5 million people, right? And even if it's only, even if it was only the four and a half to 5 million people who've seen that YouTube short, that's still an incredible uh, size of audience. And so that's an example of, you know, here's somebody who is a Olympic athlete, somebody who has cultivated a public kind of a public persona around athletics and, okay, right, there's an audience to that, right? And so people are hearing that, that thing has been now presented as a form of performance. And that's where, you know, out of respect and consideration for Alexi Pappas, right, we don't know, I don't know, and nor am I trying to assert that the original purpose or value of this was to try to, like, be persuasive um, in a performance sense. However, it is consumed as performance. So once it's out there, you know, our willingness as the audience to sort of decide what is and isn't the performance takes hold. And we do that all of the time, right? We select um, through our behavior um, as a society, we select um, what is able to have audience and what isn't able to have audience. And the limiting factor is we oftentimes don't really have enough knowledge or, you know, competent understanding of whatever is being performed or presented for us to really try to look to any indicator of, well, should I take this as valuable other than saying, well, what's the uh, capacity of the individual? And you see this stuff in success culture in general, um, where people have wealth and affluence beyond uh, the average, right, above the average level. And the further and further you get above that average, the more and more it becomes the case that people will just sort of show up and become an audience to you because we just assume um, whether we're taught to think about things this way, that could be a part of it. Um, Is it sort of maybe intrinsic to, um, 
you know, our brain and the way, you know, the human brain thinks to look at and be curious about the, you know, unique, the exceptional things. Um, and you think about that concept of the book Outliers, right? Sort of like is an implicit endorsement of the idea, well, actually there's a lot of value in looking at outliers. And, you know, I, I think at the same time, um, this isn't some sort of like secret Marxist agenda, right? I'm not saying we need to overthrow the bourgeoisie of uh, endurance athletics and, you know, rise up the people and everybody should run, you know, the local 5K no faster than 20 minutes a mile. Okay, I'm not advocating for something like that. But I think what we do want to recognize is that the optics um, that we apply as individuals are subject to these patterns of social behavior and that we aren't going to easily or automatically think as independently as we might like. And if you think about like uh, the scams of exercise um, marketing, you know, the idea that you can take a spray and spritz something in your mouth and, you know, that's going to somehow impact your hydration. You know, I mean, common sense, right, ain't so common. But, you know, common sense says, well, that's absurd. That's not going to work. Um, you know, the idea of like, you know, breathing in and out of a bag. You know, there have been so many different breathing devices just in the last couple of years, you know, and it's preying on um, people's sense of like, well, you know, hey, the breathing is hard, right? Oh, I need to practice my breathing. But if your level of understanding is more uh, developed or more sophisticated, you're not going to look at that and be like, oh, yeah, you know, that's the answer. I got to improve my breathing. Um, right. If you've done this stuff and you've been reflective and you've been, you know, taught to or have independently learned uh, or some combination of the two, you have come to understand this stuff better. You know that that's not the issue, that that's irrelevant. Right. And this kind of process of thinking goes all the way back, I would argue, to the you know basis of the development of training uh, ideas, strategies and theories, which is engaging with the like um perceivable adversity and limiting factor, which is the adversity and limitation of pain and suffering, and that, you know, the struggle, and so that we have to go out and struggle with the struggle. And the more we struggle with the essential struggle, then, you know, we continue to sort of like push the frontier at which that happens, you know, down down the road to the level of performance. And then we, you know, differentiate the people who perform the best from the people who perform the worst to everywhere in between uh, based on, you know, talent and talent being your ability to, you know, engage with that struggle. And so more, you're more talented because you're better able to handle that inherent struggle versus the understanding that, you know, what's actually happening is that as we're training and practicing and, and trying to improve in general in things, if we're doing that well, it's not because... Um, you know, we are handling a greater level of struggle or pain. And, you know, if you can think back to whenever you were first introduced to this stuff, I, I think for a lot of us, that idea of, well, it's about the pain and, you know, these people who are beating me, they, out and they handle this pain and I can't handle this pain. And perhaps for some people that was not an experience, but certainly for the people that I know, for the overwhelming majority of them, I mean, and certainly right now, talking and thinking off the top of my head, I can't think of anybody who has described not having this experience. Um, but basically that, you know, 
well, the sport is, is pain and it's hard and you have to go out and you have to handle that pain. And the more pain that you can handle, the better you're going to perform. And, you know, that is our initial point of understanding. And, you know, it's not actually functionally correct. It's not really like utilitarian um, and trying to develop ideas about how to get better. But, you know, there's enough overlap between the spaces at which things get hard and the spaces at which the body's going to exhibit adaptive responses to stress that you can create a confirmation bias through practice. And is that the right basis on which to be, you know, formulating ideas? And, you know, at this point, if we connect back to the uh, first episodes in this series, of episodes looking at this topic in general, right? That sort of level of explanation is lowering the God on the machine. And it's also related to, you know, that ghost in the machine concept as well, that it's just sort of this mind-body dualism, and we're just sort of using our, you know, mind to overcome or control or manage the body. And that those kinds of ways of thinking right, you know, also cultivate, you know, what is the audience are we willing to consume? So, for example, like, the value of ideas that we might discuss in this episode or any other episode, right, how are we really deciding, um, as listeners, how are we deciding if this has value to me, right? So, if we might not understand it, okay, or it might be unfamiliar or new, or it might challenge some of the things that we're thinking, but we might displace that and say, shut that down. Okay, I don't really get this. And if I don't get it, it's not worth my time or energy. And I actually think that's totally fine. Um, But I would also reframe that, you know, what if the value is to actually think about things that are unfamiliar or to be challenged in our thinking? What if a part of getting better at endurance sports and maybe sports in general and performance in general Um, But what if a part of getting better at these things is developing not only our ability to do that performance, but developing our ability to understand how higher levels of performance are created? And if that's the case, then maybe from an intellectual perspective, a thinking perspective, do we also want to kind of push those boundaries of thinking? And, you know, already for my part, just thinking through some of these episodes, talking to just a couple of different people I've been able to, you know, do episodes with so far, I find that my own thinking and perspective on this stuff, you know, continues to develop. And in some cases, right, we're adding additional ways of thinking. In other cases, maybe it's, you know, realizing that certain things are going in the wrong direction, and it's drawing back from those and pursuing a different direction. But either way, we're looking now at a very different method of reasoning and understanding, which is instead of, um, you know, assuming that the consensus is independent verification, right? Instead, we're taking the stance that, well, there's a huge audience for a very small number of ideas. And those ideas are presented through the modality of performance. And because of the modality of performance, that huge audience isn't independently verifying they're taking away and then saying those things back. And that's why if you think about like lactate threshold, you can find all kinds of, you know, totally useless, misleading assertions about that. 
But that's the audience, right? Is people listening to this sort of like fonts of wisdom or what we perceive to be those fonts of wisdom. And then just like, okay, let me repackage this, you know, on, on my, you know, training website or whatever the case may be. And doing that's fine as long as we also have the capacity to engage with that thinking and say, well, where can we challenge the thinking a little bit more? Where can we extend beyond the capacity of what we can currently do? Now, one dynamic in which we're seeing this play out, what we're specifically going to explore here, is that we're creating um, this body of evidence where we're seeing kind of like who is the minority performer, that that's something that we create because we're applying concepts of training in that particular way. And we want to look now at a model of using training stress score, our TSS, which uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with TSS, TSS is something that is calculated using a power meter and using a theory that um, your estimated maximum sustainable level of work for 60 minutes is a key indicator of physiological capacity and training at intensities relative to that 60-minute sustainable state um, elicits differentiable um, kinds of adaptation and that you need to distribute training in particular ways to percentiles equivalent above and below that 60-minute sustainable state in order to reach peak performance um, depending on what the different event uh, in question is. And we're going to take this at face value um, and we're going to apply it from the perspective of that certain people are more talented and certain people are less talented and talent pe- talented people are the minority. But before we get to that, we want to genuinely very quickly, sometimes I say that and then it's not so quick, but genuinely very quickly just reference back to in the previous episode in this series we try to prove that this perspective that there's a minority of special performers and the majority of us are just inadequate, I think, is false. And we try to do this by comparing, um, you know, how many teams exhibit very close levels of performance um, among their top runners between a group of um, female competitors, um, female competitor programs over a five to six year period and a group of male competitor programs. And what we found out is that there were significantly more um, male teams during that same stretch at that championship event who had um, their top seven runners finishing very close to each other with a standard deviation of less than 11 in terms of their placings. And that there were, I think, only three teams that had standard deviations of less than 11 um, for the female athletes. And that was significantly less. And I think that that right there demonstrates that, you know, that shouldn't be true. Okay. You know, these are the same source population, the same schools. And I think it's useful to use that data um, from public school uh, athletic events because you don't have that, you know, degree of like, in elite sport where people are sort of going out and they're able to recruit or contract, right, you know, the people who have already demonstrated a ability or capacity to perform. And so I think this raises the question that the idea that there's a natural um, scale of distribution of talent is as much a product of the way in which we 
allow athletes to train as anything else. Because we're seeing, as you might hypothesize, um, if you understand, you know, the magnitude and the systemic and institutional nature of, of sexism, um, you're seeing that women um, as a population group or the female population group um, is just far more likely to have huge disparities between the individuals on any given team. Um, whereas for the male, we saw sort of a bubble of high performing and low performing. But for the female teams, it just generally trended towards more dispersed levels of performance. And if there's a good coaching practice in place, then you know you should see athletes all performing at a similar level, number one, and then hopefully a higher level overall relative to their competition, which is what we were trying to examine in that data. Our goal continues to be to try to identify this ghost. And I think it's hard to see because of what we just reviewed from the first episode. And I also think it's hard to see from you know what we tried to open with here, which is understanding this relationship between um, you know, audience, the selective or the elite or the scarce individual performer, and, you know, the illusion of consensus. So if you look um, at what the normal level of performance is, then I don't think that you really see this very easily, because it seems to confirm that because, as it should, right? Because not because it's correct, but because our whole system of thinking, you know, which has become an ideology, I believe, that our ideology about this stuff is sort of like designed, if you will, around confirming this kind of thinking. And, you know, evidence from this perspective, right, and it's important to acknowledge this, um, does seem to confirm that there's this natural probable distribution of talent. Um, but what if we compare this to baseline? And I said in the last episode that some of what we're going to do is sort of hypothetical data or kind of quote-unquote fake data. Um, so this is going to be, you know, that fada, that fake data here. Um, but it's here to organize uh, and help to demonstrate the idea that we're working through um, and the get at the implications of that. And then in a sense, like, if this relationship is true, then if you went out and you started to gather the actual data um, from, you know, real-world examples um, then you would look to say, okay, well, how close does this fit the hypothesis? So all we're really doing is we're just trying to describe the hypothesis, um, you know, because we're trying to expand the way we think about this. Now, I also happen to believe that this is true, and I'll try to, you know, make the case for why I think it's true. But I want to be clear, and that, you know, the data that we're, we're generating here is hypothetical, um, it in a certain perspective. So, and, and, I'll, and we'll talk exactly about how that is. So don't want to feel that people are being, you know, manipulated by, and I certainly don't want people to take, um, you know, a numbers or a model and assume that that has, you know, a degree of validity or certainty to it beyond what it's actually intended to have. So we're going to compare to baseline. And, you know, what we want to do is basically establish, um, you know, how does the standard deviation relate to normative levels of performance? And so a baseline training model, which I'm going to say here means split aerobic. And for me, split aerobic means that you take another training model, you look at the total amount of minutes that are done at that training model, and then you take those minutes, you divide them up evenly, more or less evenly, um, across a seven-day period, and you just make all of that training at, you know, zone two, let's say. 
Uh, and we'll use that because um, there's a model of uh, estimating TSS um, from relative perceived exertion or average heart rate. Um, there's a model for estimating TSS uh, from that, um, and that it essentially then correlates to um, these different training zones because TSS is sort of extrapolated from the training zones, and it's ultimately because training zones are extrapolated from um, the concept of functional threshold power, which is, you know, 100 TSS um, in an hour is the most TSS you can get according to the TSS model, and the way you would do that is by um, working exactly at functional threshold power for an hour because according to the model, you can't maintain anything higher than functional threshold power for an hour. Which, if you're going to define functional threshold power as what you can do for an hour, then that would make sense that that's the correct conclusion. So from this basic premise, this system of training is then extrapolated. And I think we do see cross-pollination between different sports where the ideologies around these kinds of training paradigms, um, although something like TSS might not be, you know, in its sort of genesis of being from a power meter derived from power data isn't directly applicable to, say, you know, running, um, where you don't have a capacity to directly measure power, although I know that these um, stride pod things are sort of becoming a metric. But what I'm arguing makes training uh, worth studying or worth replicating, or maybe in simpler terms, uh, makes it, you know, uniquely effective as in achieving something beyond baseline, which is the goal here. Um, what makes it effective um, and meaningful is if you are able to increase the density of performance towards the higher end of that performance scale. So if you look at the distribution of teams with small standardized deviations of placements in their varsity group of runners at the state championship and the data from last week's uh, episode, and you can check the um, Instagram for those uh, graphs if you want to see that visually, what you're seeing is that you know one population of athletes, which has just so happens to be the male population, um, has more achievement towards the higher end, and the female population has lower levels of achievement because there's more variability within those uh, varsity population of athletes of those teams, the top seven runners. And I don't think that that is inevitable, and I think that training should um, value that distribution. And I think that something like TSS and, and training peaks, perhaps in general, as a mechanism, um, when you put algorithms into place or you use um, too much calculation, and let's define too much calculation as the point at which you are funneled into certain decision-making uh, strategies around training rather than um, you are like innovating and looking to see, well, what am I actually more or less responsive to? And how does that responsiveness change at different times? And how does that point to me, uh, point me in the direction of constantly trying to restructure, replan, rethink, reorganize what I'm doing? So when you are playing this stuff out in this way, I think that it just further perpetuates this belief that, you know, the high level of performance should have a particular quantity of people. And, you know, but we've also seen in aggregate, you know, the trend that the top level of the sport has gotten faster, but that would just sort of su suggest that the stratospheric 
performers are just climbing, you know, further and further into the outer ranges of that stratosphere. But why shouldn't we also see um, a sort of like congregation effect of more and more people, you know, sort of also achieving higher levels of performance, right? There should, I think, in theory, be increasing density at that level. And I think that the problem is, is that, you know, the way we distribute and assign training reinforces this, you know, hierarchical distribution, and it can drive up people at the very top end, but it's not bringing up um, the, you know, larger population of people. And rather than dismiss um, the larger population of people as saying, well, you guys are sort of like the collective outlier from the exercise standpoint, because most people are outlier to the system and the responsiveness of the system. Um, Instead, we're fetishizing the you know unique individual performers, and I think that's sort of like a, reflected by you know Malcolm Gladwell's outliers is you know the idea that well the outliers are you know the significant people, and it's our inability to recreate what they're doing, but maybe it's more so our inability to understand you know how most of us are not responding well to the attempt to emulate that, because it's not as though you know these people haven't always tried to imitate the processes of the people at the higher ends of these categories of achievement. So um, I've extrapolated some data for this example um, based on some, you know, you know, real numbers, but not numbers from, from real people. And then I've sort of filled in a little bit with conjecture to explore this idea and relationship fully. You can reach and should reach your own conclusions about the utility of this as an approach um, in terms of in practice, but I think in terms of trying to explore an idea or a concept, I, I think it's pretty effective and useful. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to compare that aerobic baseline uh, model that's just sort of splitting the volume in aerobic density of like kind of like zone two type training, um, and that has a TSS score per hour of 50 to 60 points per hour. And then, um, you know, and that's something that, you know, you can do pretty much every day. And then, you know, you look at this scale and if you go, you know, zone one is sort of on the range of um, 20, 30, 40 TSS per hour. Zone two is 50 to 60. Zone three is 70. Um, Zone four is 80. And then, um, you know, as you get to right, truly uh, FTP, um, you're looking at 100. And then when you go to... um, like VO2 max, um, then it's like 120, 140, right? And so the model then is basically saying that, you know, per time of work, you know, this is the effective value of what you're trying to do. So even though I don't particularly like TSS, and it's not a data point that I ever pay any attention to, because I don't think it's really informative. And I think it is something that, you know, pushes us into this pattern of training, right? So now what you're trying to do is you're trying to exhibit TSS and you're assuming that there's this direct and desirable relationship between TSS and then performance outcomes or, you know, growth and um, outcomes. And, you know, I, I think that that's not really true. Performance is the best measure of performance. We should be evaluating the effectiveness of our training by how does it work in terms of performance. And, you know, then, that's tricky because of the fact that if you're constantly going out and trying to do performances or tests, right, then that's sort of going to limit or constrain what you can do for training. But 
that's where you like we go to you know the concept of a coach or the concept of you know looking at other examples to try to be more efficient with our time and get things done that are more effective or more productive so and i found in practice um like even if you just use strava and you just try to charge up their um you know fitness graph that like to do that you have to like freaking murder yourself you know i've you know experimented with like uh, you know, golden cheetah, and I've used that in the past, um, and these different things, because it's interesting to learn about them, and then you use them, and then, you know, you kind of arrive at your conclusions of, is this effective or not for me? But I'm going to set aside my skepticism, and I'm going to really, like, apply the model. So I'm going to compare what do the values look like of the training uh, done on different timescales for you know, a hypothetical group of athletes with different levels of responsiveness to training. And um, if we assign them this training program or this training system, you know, what would be a reasonable and I think normative distribution of intensities, you know, organized around, um, you know, imagined, real or imagined energy systems of training zones. So one of the beliefs is that, um, you know, total hours, hours per week, annual TSS accumulated and then TSS distributed um, per week that this and, you know, target CTL or CTL meaning chronic training load that, you know, as you take on more of this performance goes up. And, you know, certainly from a output standpoint, uh, it makes sense to say that, um, when, when you're looking at it from like an end perspective that, wow, you know, the athletes who did more were capable of more because like doing more is the definition of being capable of more. So you're really just concluding the athletes who were fitter are fitter than the athletes who are not as fit. But then we're inverting that logic and then saying, okay, well then, you know, if you flip this around and then you put this in, um, then at the end of that execution, you will have created that athlete. And then if you don't, right, it's sort of blamed on the individual. And I think that basically this whole premise of you just sort of take what you see from a minority and then apply that to most people doesn't work. I think that most people, and this is where, you know, the key underpinning idea, uh, if you don't think that it makes sense to reason that most people should be able to be pretty good and that the competitive, and it should be a small group of people who are underperforming, um, you know, then if you don't accept that premise, then obviously nothing else is going to sort of kind of follow um, logically. But I think when you look at this idea of, and then, you know, so if you take cycling, right, so you have sort of have the category one, two, the kind of like elite uh, category of athletes, you know, who are, you know, as about as good as you're going to be, but, you know, still be an amateur, um, you know, that's accumulating 770 to 960 TSS a week. You go down to category three, that's 480 to 673, category four, 385 to 577. And, you know, you say, okay, well, so most people can't handle that training, and then that's why they're not good. And that might be true that they can't handle the training, but why can't they handle the training? Is it because they lack the capacity to do that? Or is it because uh, the training isn't really that effective? And what would it look like if you just asked them to just do, you know, split up the volume and just do it all aerobically uh, in zone one? And if working within the TS model, can you find an argu argument for that? 
And I think, to be fair, when you look at endurance sports in general, we should acknowledge most coaches aren't using TSS, but we are all using kind of an extrapolation or some sort of set of suppositions, you know, even if they're like very just sort of intuitive level intuitions, um, we're supposing that, well, doing this is going to elicit this level of response and that like this is the best possible stimulus to be applied and that if you're not responding well to that, it's you that's the problem. It's not the, the stimulus that's being assigned that's the problem. But again, this is suggesting that from an evolutionary perspective, most people's epigenetic responses are significantly lower um, and that there's, you know, in a grand scheme, maybe 10% of the population that can do this. And it's not just like saying, yeah, well, but most people don't really train anywhere near what they could. I mean, if you look at this just in the population of people doing this stuff, seriously, you see that. And again, you go back to the population of people doing, you know, just the scale of doing high school uh, cross country um, in a smaller state. I think that you still see that, you know, pattern of distribution. So it's not, this isn't an optical illusion of comparing, you know, professional elites to, you know, um, amateurs who have full-time jobs. When you look at even within populations of people with comparable circumstances, you still see this distribution. And I don't think that evolutionary uh, logic should really support this. And I also think um, it's true that in aggregate, um, people are following this principle, which is basically assuming um, that, you know, there's value that exists outside of comparing the value of 60 seconds to 60 seconds, right? There's this belief that, you know, you can change the value of every, of any given 60 second time of exertion by changing the intensity at which that's done. I'm not rejective of that, right? But like the nature of the value um, that we are sort of concluding this present is I think where the debate is. Um, and I think comparing across intensities is is kind of sometimes supposed to be like, you know, apples to oranges of like, well, you can't compare VO2 max to zone two training. And it's almost like, you know, that's not fair to do that. You're sort of trampling all over my, you know, um, you know, Lego playset kind of a reaction. People get really petty, I think, very quickly about this stuff, which it's like there's that vested interest in maintaining that, you know, VO2 paradigm or whatever that high intensity paradigm is. And, you know, why is that? I think that's something that we've explored in other episodes that, you know, you can refer to that. So here's where if you have access to your phone um, and you can look at it easily, you probably want to take a look at this graph. So this graph is a 10-day microcycle, um, and it's looking at, well, what's the athletic absorption um, of theor theoretical stimulus uh, versus like the exemplar level of absorption? So um, in the theor theoretical stimulus over a 10-day period, um, we're looking at, um, we're applying a stimulus that is supposed to elicit, um, you know, or is going to be measured out, maybe we should say better, at um, 1,275 TSS points. And we calculated this by correlating um, RPE to the TSS approximation, um, and then what we're modeling is that different athletes are better or worse because they respond better or worse to training, right? This idea of like rocks versus sponges, right? Some people are hyperabsorbent 
in response to training, and that's you know supposedly the category of talent, and that some people are not very absorbent of that, and so they are you know said to be less talented. Um, so we're saying that even the best um, athlete isn't going to maybe be absolutely perfectly responsive. Okay, so the uh, first column um, is the exemplar, and that's saying we're a hundred percent responsive. That the input of training is directly proportional to output, right? So we're kind of suggesting that, well, maybe if this talent distribution is correct, then what must be true is when you assign the same TSS to a population of people, you assign a training plan or a training model. Um, If they're not all exhibiting the same response, either the TSS model doesn't work or the TS model does work. And if the TSS model does work, then you have to conclude that, well, different athletes have different levels of responsiveness. So I've sort of kind of scaled to say you have a group of this, right? So athlete A, I'm saying is responsive sort of in the 85 to 100% range. Athlete uh, B, C, and D, these three athletes are responsive. We're going to say 65 to 85% responsive. Athlete E, F, G and H are going to be 45 to 65, and then we're going to have um, two out of the 10 athletes, athlete I and J, zero to 45% responsive. And, you know, this is based kind of on my anecdotal experience, um, you know, working with high school sports teams that I think you tend to see maybe one athlete in 10, you know, 10% of the athletes seem to be exceptional in, you know, the uh, performance that they exhibit relative to the training that's programmed. And then you have a group of 30% of your population is pretty responsive, but they're sort of like talented, but not talented, you know, maybe more so seeing these people as gritty. Then you have sort of like, you know, your JV tier, which might be, um, you know, 40%. And then you're going to have, you know, those two athletes who just seem to be kind of like these no hopers, right? And so we're kind of, again, right, this is where we're making this up, right? But it's based on kind of a model of of distribution of capacity. Um, And you might, I think oftentimes, if you look at those standard deviations, I think that this is probably pretty generous, Um, based on what the actual data says. So what I'm suggesting is that athletes, different athletes exhibit different levels of responsiveness to training. And when you look at these columns, um, what you see is that compared to the exemplar, which you might also think of as like the training input, well, you're seeing different athletes have different levels of responses. And within those ranges, um, I just sort of randomly assign different athletes a responsiveness value within their assigned responsiveness range. So this would sort of be like your profile of what your team might look like, um, you know, or a generic athlete population might look like, right? You're applying your TSS model. You've got this one person for whom it's working. Then you've got other people for whom it's working still pretty well. And then you start to see this sort of decline. And I think that's sort of the model or the distribution of talent that we've sort of come to accept. But I think that um, you know, how does this prove or how does this, how should this make us question whether or not this is uh, correct? So I think what we're trying to hypothesize is that the lack of responsiveness isn't inherent. It's lack of responsiveness to the training that is given to them. And I think that consistent aerobic training is what most people are the most responsive to. And that fits in with the notion that the majority of the population is going to be well adaptive. Um, Like it's a 
minority of people who seem to be able to eat whatever they please and not exhibit weight gain. You know, that's probably about 10% or less of the population that can do that. Most people are really effective at eating um, food in excess of what they actually need metabolically. In other words, they're more metabolically efficient and they're really good at storing that, right? So as we have, you know, increasing food abundance and, you know, uh, calorically dense food abundance since the 1970s, we've seen increasing levels of body mass, right? It makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. If you find, you know, honeycomb um, in a state of nature um, and you don't have refrigeration or, you know, cultivated crops, well, if you're going to eat that, right, your body's going to get, you're going to be able to eat all of that sugar, right? You're going to eat that entire honeycomb and then your body if your body can store that, well, that's going to be really good. That's really effective. You can make use of that energy over a long period of time. But if you don't store that, then you know that's a, a disadvantage for survival. So that idea that most people should exhibit, you know, like efficient responses to stimulus, um, because that makes sense from a survival uh, evolutionary perspective, I think suggests that when we're looking at the way people train and, you know, whether or not people get better, that it doesn't make sense to say it's the training. And I think it makes sense that most people are going to be able to improve by doing aerobic training. So that's where now we say, well, the baseline. And so for the baseline, we've extrapolated this um, from also looking at, you know, well, let's just use the TSS model, right? Let's not make up a competing thing. Let's test this system against itself. So what happens if you take the total, you know, time um, needed to generate that exemplar TSS? And then what happens if you assign it uh, to these athletes in that regard? And let's assume now that the responsiveness variability is responsiveness variability due to the way in which people are responding to this you know, intensity, distributive, distributive intensity model of TSS. So this is where we want to look at second graph. And we're going to um, say we have like the exemplar training, and we're going to say this is against Black Cat's run uh, argument of like feel good baseline training, that that's actually more effective than most people are willing to give that credit for. So if we look at that over 10 days, okay, our uh, baseline model is we're going to say um, for seven days, we're just going to do 120 minutes of zone two. And then for three days, we're going to do 60 minutes of zone one. So we're not even saying to do zone two literally every single day. We're saying that, um, you know, out of the scale of 10 days, 30% of those days are going to be zone one um, and seven days are going to be zone two training. And you might say, wow, you know, 120 minutes of zone two, if you're thinking about this in, say, running terms, that's really intense. That's a lot. Well, we're not saying it had to be done continuously. It could have been broken up into an hour, an hour. Um, and then the other point is like, well, yes, you know, what's sort of one of the limiting factors is if you're just applying this in a like 40 minutes a pop kind of idea of, you know, I, it's unusual for me to even spend an hour exercising. Well, you know, that's another factor that's sort of weighting things uh, in favor of these higher intensity models. And you might say, well, but people can't do that. Well, that's fine if people can't do that, but that doesn't mean um, that it doesn't work, right? And that sort of can't do it is sort of organized around like, what's our lifestyle our lifestyle choices in terms of, you know, where do we make space for exercise? How do we value that as a part of what we do in our leisure time? 
and I, you know, challenge most people. And I would say, I bet that a lot more people could find time to do two hours of exercise a day broken up into different chunks um, than, you know, might be willing to admit it, right? Because if we admit to it, then we have to take responsibility for the fact that we're sort of choosing um, away from doing that kind of stuff. And I think we should probably also uh, make sure that we're defining what kind of our uh, exemplar model is. So this over 10 days um, is day one, doing lactate threshold workout session. Um, and we're saying that that's like, we're going to use the model that, you know, Training Peaks and the TSS world would use, which is this idea or the belief that the lactate threshold is FTP. Um, the next day, we're going to have active recovery and then a zone two aerobic day and then a VO2 max workout. Um, and then here we are in day five, active recovery, zone two aerobic day, um, and then an aerobic threshold workout. So if you use sort of that most commonly articulated idea, that might be the, the supposed idea that the two millimole number is, you know, the number. And you know, we've also um, tried to make the point on the pod and other episodes that that might be inaccurate. But again, we're trying to stay true to, well, what is the, the model that would be applied? So, right, trying to apply it in the best possible sense of it, um, then active recovery and then aerobic and then um, for the 10th day in the cycle, endurance workout. So just over distance, um, run, ride at zone two. So we sort of tried to do 10 days here because I wanted to represent, you know, kind of the different paradigms of workouts, working out at, you know, threshold um, or FTP, working out at VO2 max intensity, working out at aerobic threshold, um, doing uh, endurance work then doing active recovery and then doing some sort of like, quote unquote, regular, um, you know, steady uh, aerobic exercise. So that's why we came arrived at that. Okay, so that's what we're contrasting between these two models. And in the second example, um, the zero point on this graph, okay, um, if you have zero points on this graph, then that would mean that that athlete um, the when you input that TSS model, that means that they are um, getting the exact same level of return um, that they would from the baseline training. That sort of feel good. Let's just go out, be aerobically comfortable. You know, take it a little easy. You know, th- you know, in three days and ten. And what we see is that the exemplar, you know, is there, and then that one athlete, that high responder. Um, is outperforming that baseline, but that, and then there's, you know, one of those sort of that next tier of athletes, the 65 to 85% responsiveness group, and that we're seeing that athlete being a little bit over. And then basically everybody else now we start to see that, okay, like if they have a low level of responsiveness to TSS or that TSS exemplar training plan with that lactate threshold, VO2 max, aerobic threshold, and endurance, like touching on those different workout paradigms and then having to recover from those um, in order to be able to execute the next one at that desired level of proficiency and intensity. What we see is that, okay, these athletes, if they just did aerobic training, which we think the body is more likely to be highly responsive to, that they would have been better off just doing that. So essentially, I think that this Again, this is where we're kind of at the point of thought experiment because 
you would have to do, you know, actual testing to try to find some way to validate the concept of, um, you know, responsiveness being the variable um, that is a function of the training that you apply. Although I don't think you'd have to look very far to start seeing that there's a lot of, in a meta sense, aggregate evidence to support that. Um, and I think that, like, we would then ask the question, like, is the training really effective? And I would say, so the training is effective for one athlete, and then it's marginally more advantageous for a second athlete. And then basically in 80% of the instances, the athletes are disadvantaged by applying this high intensity, you know, training model. And that idea of like one one in 10, that 10% are really good, then there's like a second tier of people who are like decent, but they're nowhere near that level. And then everybody else is just sort of like, you know, in the peanut gallery is, is very much the distributive model of performance that I think we see in general. But this would sort of reflect the idea that that's a product of how we train, right? That like, you know, the actual sort of specter, that, that ghost that we're trying to identify here starts to become clear, right? Like if we're ghost hunting this, um, like this is what we're seeing now, right? We have changed um, the paradigm of examination to think about this. And I think that coaches should be have an 80% success rate, that you know, 80% of their athletes should be better off doing what the coach is doing than just going out and doing routine, aerobic, steady running or riding or a combination of those every single day, right? Otherwise, what's the point of the coach and the coach's training ideas? Well, there is no point because they're not doing anything, right? And you're getting, if anything, that one athlete who's sort of really absorbing a significant advantage is kind of a false positive. You know, for me, coaching cross country, you know, we had 50% of our team running under 17 minutes. And I, I really don't think that that's at all unreasonable. And almost everybody on our team uh, was, at a, was a varsity athlete on one or more, um, in some cases, you know, almost all um, of those uh, other teams. I mean, when you have seven people finish in the top 14, that means, you know, most of our guys could have gone and taken their level of performance and been the number one, the best runner on another team, right? But you also make the argument that um, they might not have been the best runner on the team if they were that environment, because a lot of it is that like the athletes are producing this level of performance because of the training context. And I think it would have been interesting maybe to see what would have happened over a longer period of time, you know, would we have increasingly had more and more uh, athletes, you know, doing that, right? Would we have gotten to the point where maybe like eight out of every 10 athletes, you know, is eventually getting to where they're running under 17 minutes. And I actually think based on how we were trending, um, that was pretty realistic. And, you know, the reality is you can still improve when getting less benefit from like the baseline training. So when you look at that graph, we're not saying that, oh, well, those athletes are regressing. We're just saying like, because if you look at the first graph, right, all of the athletes are exhibiting some level of responsiveness, right? But there's differences between that. But then what we're saying is, if you're going to do specialized training, it should be specialized training that gives you a level of response over what you could achieve. Because otherwise, the opportunity cost doesn't support doing that specialized high intensity training. And, you know, like Alejandro Valverde, 
uh, supposedly the anecdote is that, you know, he didn't do workouts, right? But if you're racing 80 to 100 and, you know, sometimes it seems like they might race 120 days a year. I, I don't really know off the top of my head, but probably racing at least 80 days a year. Like, well, that's, those are 80 really challenging things that you're doing on, on your bike, right? And so, you know, example of somebody who's super proficient for a long period of time, and I think the longevity is significant. Was he taking performance-enhancing drugs? Maybe, but performance-enhancing drugs doesn't correlate to, like, long-term uh, sustained engagement with the sport, you know? Uh, that doesn't really address all of those aspects of challenge, right? If you're taking PEDs and you're still doing like a mentally taxing, you know, exhaustive program, you're still going to like at some point lose interest in that, right? The PEDs might improve your ability to, you know, produce competitive results, but, you know, you're still, you're not taking away the fact that the training is is really hard and demanding. Um, when we look to see what works for, athletes and we go with the mindset that anybody can be good, um, I think then that really should cause us to sort of question these distributive hierarchies. And I I think that basically the successful environments are environments where people really question that. It's not because people are like super motivated to grind out the model the most effectively. I think it's because they're willing to, to do things differently and deviate from the model. You know, so like if I do a workout at 630 pace right now, um, you know, I would expect um, to be more responsive to that than doing uh, 609 pace because I know that 630 pace is more kind of within, you know, my wheelhouse of proficiency, right? That's proficient level of practice and going to 609 pace, I'm going to start straining or struggling and I'm going to have to reduce the duration of those repetitions and I don't want to be doing, you know, short repetition training at 609 pace. I don't think that's productive for where I am right now, where I'm trying to get, what I'm trying to focus on, right? Which is I'm trying to, you know, increase my tempo, you know, overall that I can hold for for longer periods of time. So, you know, even as I'm running, you know, 630 pace, you know, the whole time I'm thinking, you know, to myself, you know, this is hard enough. But at the same time, I also feel like uh, crap because I'm like, well, why am I reaching the point of this is hard enough at this particular pace, right? Based on this arbitrary uh, concept of what, you know, is good. And I think that's the underrepresented uh, or unrepresented phenomena that's the ghost here, right? Is I need to do intervals in a state um, that's not a state where I'm supposed to do intervals, so if you apply that, you know, exemplar model, and I did have done this, you know, for, you know, over eight years um, as a runner, you know, doing different levels of scholastic program from, you know, middle school through senior year in college, you know, applying these like these are the workouts and you go from workout to workout and, you know, it wasn't good. It wasn't productive. And, you know, you can blame yourself and say, well, I guess I'm just a baby, but, you know, I think that that's just totally inaccurate, right? Because if you really were like that, you would just have quit. Um, you know, and to be fair, by the time I was done, I was, you know, pretty frustrated. I'm pretty convinced that I'm just a terrible, terrible athlete. And I think that's, you know, one of the other unappreciated costs of this is it's not just like, oh, well, you know, we're sorting these people. But that's, again, just sort of like a total lack of empathy uh, for people who are struggling to kind of like actualize or, or get stuff out of them, right? But my freshman year in college, I made a jump, you know, of, you know, 15 seconds in the mile, basically, you know, from where I had been 12 months ago. 
And, but then I just regress back from that. Right. And so I think there's sometimes this idea that, well, you go to college and then you're in college, you're doing college training, you get really fast. And, you know, that's not really what's going on for most people. And, and I think it's frustrating. And I don't think it's right that we take away people's ability to enjoy this stuff. Um, first of all, and I think, you know, second of all, I think we learn more in general when we create environments where we see that lots of people can perform. And I think that does relate. It's a broader cultural issue is that we have this confirmation bias and we use sport as a sort of morality play to just sort of prove that most of us can't perform. And then we should accept the kind of distributive hierarchies of power and status as a consequence of that, which might sound like a conspiracy theory, but I think there's a lot more merit to it than you might at first think. So, you know, if I do um, another example, if I do 20 by 30 seconds at 250 watts and then take 45 seconds at be- in between at 195 watts, you know, that's might be considered trash. And my average heart rate across the whole thing is like 155. And, you know, none of this is checking off the productive cr- criteria because my max heart rate is 210, 213. So I should have this significantly higher heart rate and you know my ftp heart rate is you know on the bike 183 to 185 and you know none of this stuff is fitting with that model but if i apply the model i'm less responsive and i've ultimately found for my part that i've sort of in order to continue to do this stuff that a lot of times i'm kind of like just regress back to kind of that aerobic split training of i'm going to take a lot of activity and just sort of go out day after day after day um, but it's, it also shows that checking off these different kinds of workouts and these different intensities of these different quote unquote energy systems, um, it's an illusion that this is effective because over time, this ineffectuality adds up quite a bit. So if you look at this over like the scale of 10 years, um, you know, there's a cumulative athlete response versus and uh, the exemplar TSS response. And what we're seeing is, you know, at the high end, right, at that really high end, there's a considerable amount of growth that occurs. But And it's, it's subtle, but if you look carefully, uh, you can see that even just the difference between the top responder and the, you know, exemplar, that gap actually starts to grow over time, right? And so these gaps between these athletes, right, in terms of like, you know, TSS, sort of accumulative uh, training benefit, right? The idea that, you know, there's a, your responsiveness to TSS equals performance, right? So we're taking the, giving the TSS model the benefit of the doubt um, that we're seeing this like increasing gap. Because if we also look at, and we say like, well, you know, what does it look like kind of like towards the lower end of this, you know, right? It's not a constant relationship, right? The other athletes are increasingly disadvantaged. And this kind of like spreading gap kind of, you know, makes me think of Thomas Piketty's capital in the 21st century and, the, you know, that relationship of R is greater than G, that the rate of return on investment is greater than the growth rate of the economy. And when you think about it, right, it's like it's very similar to that kind of a relationship, right, where for, you know, a minority of people, like they're making a significant return on the investment of this kind of relationship. But for most of these people, they're just kind of stuck and that gap between them widens over time. And so the best people get better and better and better. And then, you know, everybody else is that widening gap is going to also be like very like, why am I still doing this? Like, what's the point? I'm basically awful. And I think it's going to motivate people to quit. And another uh, visual to show this is um, if you look at it kind of in like a column graph um, over 10 years, 
um, athlete response um, to exemplar relative to um, our sort of Black Cats Run Feel Good Baseline training, right? And this is sort of an extension of that same model, right? But we're seeing over the long term that basically one athlete is really benefiting in aggregate and that, you know, the sort of like negative um, contrast um, for everybody else is like you continue to slip further and further back from what you could achieve um, through that baseline training. And I think this is kind of why we're not seeing the general population of athletics, uh, of athletic participants uh, being brought back up. So as we go through this process, um, right, it isn't simply a widening gap uh, between the talented and the untalented, it's also a confirmation of our preconceived notion of what's happening in society in general, right? The poor fall while the strong flourish. And just because social Darwinism has been rejected doesn't mean that we don't kind of find ourselves applying that kind of uh, Darwinian, our sort of misinterpretation of this Darwinist notion. Because I think the correct interpretation of you know, the implications of Darwinianism is to say that most humans, um, most the majority of people should be pretty responsive uh, to stress and should exhibit adaptive responses, right? Otherwise, a species, you know, wouldn't have survived to the point that it has, would go extinct. And the superior um, benefit, though, is like shrinking with each evolution of our data. It's pre- predicated on the superior benefit of just a few workouts, Right, of focusing on a few key workouts against baseline. Um, but we see that as we expand the time scale, the benefit of the exemplar or the 10% of the population um, actually kind of shrinks uh, compared to the baseline. Right, So like over a longer and longer period of time, your advantage doing specialized workouts based on these, hypo- these sort of real or imagined energy system models, that your advantage over that is greatest in the short term and in the long term basically that means the baseline training is closing the gap Um, and that the non-responders or the people who respond less who don't have that really high level of response to the training input that those people get increasingly disadvantaged because basically you could think about it as just that responsiveness of the baseline training over the long term will close the gap on that high responder and therefore distance in its in the rearview mirror, all of the people who are also applying that, and I think this is like reflective of what we see in practice in the real world. So, you know, like on the micro scale, the high responder um, is twenty three points above the baseline, um, and on the meso scale, the high responder is sixteen points above baseline, and then by the time you get to the macro scale, the high responder is now ten points above baseline. Again, this is relative to baseline you can see, right, these individual gaps um, and, and the way these are developing. And I think that, like, again, you know, you'd have to really investigate this um, from a kind of more, like, um, empirically evidenced approach. But I think it models what I feel I see um, and what I think a lot of people experience, which is the sense of I see this works really well for certain individuals, right? And it circles back to that idea of, you know, being in the audience, right, witnessing a performance. And we walk away from that performance, we've been influenced by that. And like, because it was performed, we're inclined to basically process and accept that. But that that's not necessarily the best basis on which to try to reach these conclusions. And, you know, what this means in practice is that 
instead of looking at, you know, what other people are doing or saying or looking at, um, you know, Alexi Pappas rule of thirds, which I know I keep using that as an example, but it's something that, you know, seems to be making the rounds right now and people like rationalizing what they're doing. Um, but if I go on the trainer and I'm doing 250 watts for short reps and that feels right, um, and it feels challenging but doable, and that's where I start. And if the heart rate's low, it's low, right? And my tolerance for work will rise over time. And it's a struggle, though, because athletes don't want to do the higher volume of work at lower intensity. They just want to do the hard stuff because there's this dogmatic belief in that value. And then I think there's also this sense of like, um, you know, you think about that concept of, of masculinity, um, well, what about like extending that concept into like athleticism, that the ability to do hard, challenging things proves that we're, you know, athletic people like, you know, the games people will play catching tennis balls of like throwing it in wonky ways and trying to catch it in weird ways. And it's like, I mean, I've never really been a tennis ball aficionado, but like, you know, people do this stuff, right. And, and trying to like, be expressive of their athleticism and you know is athleticism something that's tantamount to masculinity but you know all athletes regard regardless of their gender identity you know are going to potentially engage with that space that we need to show how good we are at something by doing stuff that's really hard um but doing stuff that's really hard might ultimately cause us to not show how good we are because you know you can do the workout but you can't do the races and that's certainly been an experience that I have had, and, and I know many people have had. And, you know, so we're shifting from saying that the outlier is the person that we want to study because of their uniqueness, and we're failing to understand how to get good at stuff because we're not studying the outliers. And we're saying, well, if the outlier is the thing that we want to be studying, then, you know, the outlier are actually this like majority of people that they're the outliers and we can't recognize that because of our, you know, mathematical frame of reference. And I'm not trying to say math is wrong, but most people should be um, where the outliers are. And as a consequence, that means that most people are the outlier, right? And that's not technically true in that mathematical sense. But like when you consider that, I think what we're seeing here is most people would do better with baseline you know, splitting their training volume up aerobically. Um, and like, even when we're using the TSS model itself, like the TSS model proves that if there's a variability in the responsiveness of athletes, that those athletes, like once you get below a certain level, if you're not like highly responsive to TSS training and, and these specialized workouts that you're, you know, designing based on these power meter zones that are supposedly correlated to these energy systems, blah, blah, blah. Like you're better off just doing standard aerobic training. So when we study the top performers, I don't think we're really learning as much as we think we are. And we should be studying why people aren't getting better. And we should be more responsive to that, right? It's that, you know, survivorship bias, right? You know, we're looking at, you know, the things that they're doing well, and we're trying to do more of that. But it's like, if those are the things that they're doing, then like those must, and those are the things that we tell people to do, but we're not seeing this like, you know, increasing level of performance, then we're doing stuff wrong. And we know that it's possible to do this because we know that, um, you know, different training environments, although they're the minority of training environments, we know that you can change a training environment 
um, and change coaching strategies to where you have a majority of people doing well. Okay. Right. And so that's what we need to be focusing on. Um, you know, we also aren't searching for some kind of like red scare communist approach. Um, I think of it as a, as the way sporting federations can hurt or benefit athletes. Sometimes a standardized approach um, and standardized set of expectations works to elevate performance. Um, and behaviorally, some people have a hard time uh, feeling good, uh, being individually unique, that people need to feel that they're a part of a system or a, a common environment, and that being out there and, and being autonomous and independent doesn't really work for them. So, you know, asking what is the opportunity cost for the individual? What happens when they are out of um, that space, when they're out of that, you know, workout to workout paradigm? Um, what does that look like? And trying to assess the opportunity cost. I think that's really important. And another complexity is that athletes uh, might have a mercurial or negative relationship with sport. You know, how do they respond over time? And that's informed by this complex weight of cultural milieu. Like we exist in a social space in a social environment and that level of response is real. It's not like, well, you can choose to engage with it or not. It doesn't matter. It does matter. And if you don't pay attention to that cultural environment um, that people are in, that can be difficult. And I think creating a space where either through your confidence as being an individual or through kind of like a social space um, that you get to participate in can create grounding for that. And we had a lot of success with our cross-country team as a group because, you know, it created a, a social space um, in which engaging with this stuff in, in a particular way was normalized. Um, and that, you know, that was how you sort of like connected to and related to people within that social group is because you're having this shared experience. And then it made it possible to be like, well, the external, the larger group of people doesn't really relate to that. Um, and it's, you know, in a silly sense, it's kind of like being a part of like a tribe, right, where you kind of have a unique cultural space and identity that sets you apart and that that becomes like a positive and a fun thing um, to kind of be able to do something autonomous and unique. And then that's validated because of the healthy outcome of being able to self-actualize and and feel good about yourself. And, you know, that's where we want to be able to get. And that's one of the big benefits of sport is it can feel good to do it and it can also help us feel good, right? It should be a circularly productive relationship. And I know athletes who can't look at what they're doing uh, from the perspective of I'm innovative, right? Their social needs and anxieties drive them to do what they see as normal practice, even if they fail and can't improve because they've engaged in that normal practice. So being responsive to that dynamic and saying, like, you know, how do we empower those people, right? And recognizing that for maybe a majority of people, you know, the need to fit in and be same is actually what's powerful and influential, And that if we extend, you know, success culture into sport, you know, we want to recognize that we're just extending an artifice of hierarchical societies and we're extending these myths of meritocracy. And, you know, there are these people for whom um, the system works the best, um, not necessarily the people who are the best. You know, Plato says society is sorted into three classes, you know, of you know, broadening availability, if you will, the philosopher elites, the warriors, and then everybody else who he says just wants to sit around and drink. And what we want to think about is to what extent is that society's structure 
and not just the structure of society. You know, dogmatic answers to training just don't work. Henry Ford says, any color, so long as it's black. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Black Cats Run. We will be back with a third part of this series where we will be exploring the implications of if the majority of us are not well served by these kinds of standardized distributive intensity models of training such as you know is sort of being driven by tss what should we be doing instead if you've been enjoying the podcast you can check us out on instagram at black cats run message us let us know what you're thinking what you'd like to hear more about we're also available for consultation you can reach out to inquire let us know we'd love to hear from you We'll catch you next time.